We've been talking the last few weeks about this difference between religion and relationship. And that you can operate or live in one or the other. And they have very different results in your life and in the lives of others. And we've been looking at the story of Hosea. And um, in a little while, we're going to look at the third chapter and see what happens in the next bit of that story. But I just wanted to start with this, that one of the, one of the obstacles we have to seeing everything that God has for us and receiving in our own lives everything that God has for us is that we don't understand grace. Now, you go, well, I understand grace because I've heard Mark preach on it like lots of times and I've done rock solid, so I understand grace. I'm not talking about the description of what grace is. I'm talking about living in it. There's a whole big difference between knowing what grace is and living in grace, living a grace-filled life. And because we don't understand it, we, we, we can stop and we go, well, grace is all about me being forgiven for all the wrong stuff that I've done. Well, that's true, but ultimately it gets us to a point where we go, well, that's okay then, isn't it? Because it's God's job to forgive. And, um, you know, I get it that God loves me and he cares for me even though I mess up just because my parents love me and care for me even though I mess up and, and that's sort of like who God is. And we, we stop at that point. And when we do that, we, we, we fail to take grace and, and apply it to our life. And it's when we apply it to our life that we change. And grace is a whole lot more than just about forgiveness. It's about a, a fiery, passionate, burning, jealous love that God has for you and he wants you to receive. His objective is to get his love for you, to you and be in relationship for you and you to receive that love and then to live from that love. That's his objective. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? So when, we, when we're looking at the passage this morning, it's there that I'm going to be coming from. Now, that sort of grace is meant to do a lot more than forgive us. That sort of grace, is, it's there to change us. It's there to ground us. It's there to sustain us. And when we don't know how to apply that sort of grace to our life, we get stuck in the same patterns that have run our life for years and years and years and years. You see, you can know a lot about God. You can have been around church for decades. You can have been around church as a Christian and believed and understood a lot of things. But if you don't apply what Christ has done to your life, there's no change. And if you don't know how to do that, you get stuck in the stuff that you've been stuck in for year after year after year. Amen? You with me? Okay. So we're going to look a little bit about how, how is it that we get unstuck? How is it that we get past our past? So this morning is about getting past our past. 
Now, we've been talking about these two people. Hosea the prophet, who God doesn't say, go and tell the people. He says, go and show the people how I feel about them. And in order to show the people how I feel about them, you're going to have to marry this unfaithful prostitute called Gomer. And she's going to continue to be unfaithful to you. And by the way, you're going to have to bring up the kids that she uh, gets pregnant with because of her prostitution. And you're going to have to do that because I want you to show these people how I love them. And we've looked at the last two weeks about God's crazy love in that way. Like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Because he does it because he's pursuing us. You see, sometimes we think we go looking for God, but we don't. He's after us all the time. He's coming for you all the time. And then last week, we looked at that, that point of, you know, God being willing to be even the last in line when there's nothing left, when you've tried everything else to fulfill in your life. He's willing to stand at the end of that line and still be there waiting. And we looked at that last week. Now, I want to look at it slightly differently this way. I want to look at it from Gomer's point of view. Because we've been looking at Hosea, God's point of view. Now, if you're Gomer, the prostitute, and you, are, you, you start to understand how much God loves you. You start to understand that, that there's this forgiveness that you don't deserve. And that, that he still wants to keep loving you. So you start to understand that. But the problem is that although you can understand something, often it's difficult to access it, to receive it. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading this, this story, and I'm wondering, like, what does Goma feel? What is it that stops her getting her life transformed? What is it that stops her um, being able to be set free from this lifestyle she's got? What is it that, that, that's driving her to keep messing up and, and keep being unfaithful? Why, why would you do that? In, because you can see how much her husband loves her. And for us, you know, we can see how much God loves us, most of us. You know, we, we've heard about Jesus dying on the cross, and we know, you know, we know it in our heads, but somehow it doesn't translate to the way we live our lives and, and what's going on in our lives. So, and, and it's a bit like this, in that Gomer, she's got some stuff that she needs to get over to break out of that cycle. And, um, you know, when we... When we try and receive God's love, there's, there's sometimes, there's often a blockage because when you come to receive God's love and when you come to know God, the issue is you've got a past. You've got a past. There's things that have gone on that have shaped who you are. There's things that have put that hole in your life. There's things that have messed it up. And and Goma is just a brilliant example of this, you know, um, because she keeps getting stuck, and every time she tries to sort her life out, she gets this detour back that takes her back into her old life. And, you know, people have done a, loads of work on this in, in, in writing books and all sorts of things, but basically she's stuck in something that is called the spiral of shame, the spiral of guilt. And even though we know that God loves us, we find it so hard to receive what God has for us 
because of guilt and shame. And you see this, you know, we do a lot of work with, um, um, what do you say, ladies who've been in difficult situations, abusive situations. We have a, a, a program called Restore that helps ladies that have been in those sort of abusive situations. And one of the things that you, you find is that people who are stuck in that sort of situation will try and leave it and go back. Try and get out of it and go back. And, and typically, somebody will go back into that old lifestyle five to seven times before they're able to break free. Because they're stuck in this spiral of guilt and shame. They feel really like... There's no way that I can actually feel clean. There's no way that I can, can actually feel like I'm forgiven. There's no way that, there's just no way I can get past my past. And for us, because this story is about us, we can get stuck like that as well. We can feel like, yeah, I understand God wants to forgive me, I understand he loves me, but I don't feel that I'm worth it. I feel, I feel terrible. I feel dirty. I feel hopeless. I feel like, how can I ever break free of my life as it was and as it is? And um, often the, like that barrier stops many of us ever being entering, able to enter in to the grace and the love that God has for us. And that's because we're unsure that, that what's gone on in our life and, and that guilt and that shame makes us unsure of how God sees us. And it also makes us that we don't like ourselves. And when we're in that place, we've got a couple of barriers to overcome. We've got to start to see God for who he is and how much he loves us. But we've also got to get over some barriers about ourselves. So we see Gomer and um, I'm going to look at chapter 3 now. And we're going to leave that up because these are the only verses we're going to be looking at today. Just a little exit. Actually, chapter 3 is really short. And it says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one and a half omers of barley. Okay, now let me explain what's going on here. You remember last week that what happened was that, that Goma came to the end of herself and came back to Hosea and um, returned to him because he'd uh, basically romanced her back. And, 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 and she had nothing left. He was the last resort, so she went back to him. By the time chapter 3 comes around, what she's done is she sold herself to somebody else. They actually own her. Now, you might think this is like a bit weird because we don't do that sort of thing anymore. But interestingly enough, until just over 100 years ago, we used to do that in England. You could, I, I remember studying a book for my GCSE called The Mayor of Casterbridge, and he flogs his wife. He sells her. 
You used to be able to go to country fairs, and if your wife was displeasing to you, you used to be able to sell her. Now, in Israel at that time, the wife could go and sell herself. So she's gone and sold herself to somebody else. And, and she's got 30 shekels of silver, and she's run with the money. You know, she's got the money. And basically what happens is Hosea goes and buys her back. So that's what's happening here. He goes and buys her back. Now, you'd think that if you were Hosea, you might have learnt by now that, that this, isn't, this isn't the sort of relationship you really want, is it? You're not, you're not getting an awful lot back. In fact, every time you, you, you think that you've got there in showing her, her love and, and getting her out of that lifestyle she had, she goes back to it. And... But instead of going, okay, I give up, he goes and buys her back. Now, let's see what happens. So I bought for myself 15 shekels of silver, one and a half homes of barley, and I said to her, You'll, you shall stay with me many days. You'll not play the harlot, nor surely you have a man. So too will I be toward you. Right, okay. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. What's the issue here? Why does, why does Goldman keep doing this? Let me tell you a story. Um, it's a story I told quite a long time ago. I can't remember where I saw it. But there's a... I'm not going to ask you how many of you got tattoos, but you know what people with tattoos look like, don't you? And, and generally, although you're going to have something on your body for life, you go to these places that look really ropey, really dingy, and go and get yourself tattooed. And there's a story, and I can't remember who it was, but... Basically, he decides that he's going to have a tattoo, and he's thinking about, like, what sort of design would I like for my tattoo? And so, apparently, when you, you go to a tattoo parlor, there's, like, loads of pictures on the walls, and there's little there's booklets, and you can choose your tattoo, or you can design your own. But basically, you can choose your tattoo. So he's looking through all these booklets of, like, hearts and swords through hearts and, you know anything that David Beckham has or whatever. And he's looking through all the tattoo booklets and he gets, he gets this section and he finds these tattoos. And they, they say things like fail and hopeless or the end or um, I can't remember what the other ones were. But basically he finds all these tattoos that seem like really like strange, like... Why would anybody want a tattoo like that? So he goes to the tattoo shop owner and says, why do, why do, you know, you've got these in your booklet. Does anybody buy these? And he said, well, you'd be really surprised, actually, how many people have that sort of tattoo on their body. And, and they buy them. He says, but why would anybody want something on their body that says failure or hopeless or uh, Rubbish or whatever they are. Why would anybody want that on their body? And the tattoo shop owner says to him, well, you've got to understand this, sir. Before tattoo on body, tattoo already on mind. They already think that that's them. And I, I was, I thought, my goodness. So what do you do if you've got one of these tattoos and you don't like it. You don't want it anymore. Because it's there, isn't it? 
Once you've got it on, it's there. And I was looking at, at what, what do people do to get rid of tattoos? Now, uh, apparently, it's, you probably know, I, when I was growing up, everybody would just say, you can't. Well, you could actually. What you could have is you could have the two, tattoo burnt off. Now, to have the tattoo burnt off, because it's not on the surface of the skin, it's several layers deeper where the ink uh, sort of pools. Um, when it says you could have them burnt off, basically they burnt off your skin and put a skin graft on. Or you just had burn marks where the tattoo had gone. So you had a choice of tattoo or major burn marks and a lot of pain. That's how they used to get rid of tattoos. Now they have a, a new treatment, which sounds pretty scary to be honest, but it, it uses lasers. So you're learning something, you go, you go, oh, go on, got to get rid of my tattoo tomorrow or after this. <laughs> or maybe not, like you go, oh, I'm not having that. But they use lasers. And these lasers, basically what they do is they, 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 they penetrate the skin in bursts and they, they put high energy in, because they're very targeted, into where the ink is. The ink basically disintegrates or explodes under your skin. And then your body, because it's, gone, it's much smaller now, your body uses normal processes and basically clears it out of your system. That's how they get rid of to do. They can't do it with every colour. Yeah? Often you have to wait till it's just faded to those black and grey ones because that's the, the frequencies it can do, apparently. I, Fascinating what you can find out on the internet, isn't it? <laughs> now, what's the point of that? The point of this is, how do you get rid of that tattoo? Well, basically, what gets rid of tattoos? Light. Light gets rid of the tattoo. And there's, there's certain properties that that light has to have. For instance, that light has to be at the right frequency. It's no good having light at the wrong frequency. It's got to be delivered in the right way. It's not enough just to have light. You've got to deliver light in the right way. And there's another characteristic of it, that you've got to have power. So you've got to have light and power to get rid of these tattoos. Now, I'm going to come back to all this in a minute. That's why I've done it. But basically, if you're Goma, or if you're us wanting to receive all that God has for you, but you're stuck in this cycle of, of guilt, shame, and how you see yourself, you're going to need some pretty powerful love in order to scrub away that feeling, in order to get away that feeling, to remove that tattoo on your mind. You're going to have to have some pretty powerful love to remove that tattoo on your mind. That is why religion won't do. Because it's not powerful enough. It's not powerful enough. In fact, what it does is it resorts to the old way of removing that tattoo. It burns it off and leaves your scars. How many of you feel burnt by religion? How many of you got burnt by religion? Like, 
by the time I've finished describing what's happened here, you're probably nearly all going to put your hand up that you felt that this is what's happened to me. Okay? We have a funny thing in churches and in the body of Christ in that we can, we seem to, or everybody agrees we get saved by grace. I can't do anything to save myself, so I give myself to Jesus as my saviour. And then what we seem to do is spend the rest of our life trying to get cleaned up by law. Yeah. We, we come up with like this, this checklist of rules and, and, and regulations and ideas and, and ways that we've got to behave and don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, and, and, and ways of, of constraining ourselves and hemming us in and, and feeling, trying to feel better by feeling bad and... and all that sort of thing. And we, we do this, and we do that to ourselves, and we do that to each other in churches, up and down the land and across the world. We do that. Because we want to get saved by grace, but then we want to get set free by law. And law works to a certain extent. It burns it out and leaves scars. And you can end up much more badly scarred than the tattoo that you had in the first place. You see, when, when you have these lists of things, that if I do this and I do that and I do that and I do that, then I'm going to be more acceptable, something horrible happens. And the horrible thing is, you will succeed at some of those things and you will tick those lists. And, and when you get several ticks on your list, something really horrible happens because that scar festers and suddenly you feel like you're a better Christian and a superior Christian. And pride comes in, and that's the most horrible scar of all. And the trouble is that we then start to minister from that position of pride in our ticking off several of these things on our list. And when we, don't, when we anchor in religion instead of in relationship, it produces a brand of Christianity that is dull, sombre, joyless, repressive, and ultimately, everybody ends up feeling worse about themselves instead of better. We go like, because where's that abundant life? Jesus promised us all. Because we all feel really bad now. And we can like get prayer ministry and we come out from this prayer ministry and if it's not, if it's, if it comes from a religious side of that, we can go for prayer ministry and we can feel great for two days and three days later we go, I just feel so much worse. Anybody had that happen to them? Yeah? You see, a lot of us need to be set free from that cycle, that guilt, that shame, that, that stuff that keeps locking us into that cycle. But we get put off because we encounter stuff that burns us, stuff that hurts us, stuff that, 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 that basically shuts us down instead of setting us free. So what sort of love is powerful enough? What sort of love does the laser treatment and not the skin graft treatment? What sort of love is it? You've all, you should have all got the letter this month. So I'm going to touch on some of those things that are in the letter. 
But let me start with a story, and I want to be accurate in this story, so I'm actually going to read it, which is unusual. I don't normally read stories. So if this is your first morning, I don't just sit here and read, okay? Um, but it's a story of, of somebody, I read, read a lot of his stuff when I was at university and shortly after. Guy called, anybody come across a guy called Tony Campolo? Okay, so some of you will have come across this story probably. But basically, he's flown somewhere. I think he went to Hawaii. Oh, and and I, I was that sort of glamorous ministry where you just fly to Hawaii to do some ministry. Yeah. You know, I get to go places like Preston and Accrington, you know. Um, in fact, one of the places I went to, um, we, we, we went to the Crimea a couple of years ago, and we, we, we were so impressive that the Russians had to invade to sort it all out. But he goes to Hawaii, and, and basically, he can't get his clock reset, his body clock. So he finds himself at 3.30 in the morning in a coffee shop. And the only other people in this coffee shop are a group of prostitutes. And, and so he's there drinking his coffee, and he overhears one of the prostitutes uh, called Agnes, and she's, she's telling the other ones, it's my birthday tomorrow. And so, anyway, they, they go to do their business, and uh, he goes up to the coffee shop owner and says, can I um, throw a party tomorrow in your coffee shop? And the coffee shop owner says, yes. So I'm going to read you the story. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I'd picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready and when they came in, we all screamed, Happy Birthday! Never as I, have I seen a person so shocked. Her mouth fell open, her legs buckled, and when we finished singing, her eyes moistened, and when the cake was carried out, she cried. Harry, that's the owner of the bar, gruffly mumbled, as bar owners do, gruffly mumble, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on. That's my gruffly mumbling. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles myself. Finally, he did. The cutting of the cake took even longer. Cut the ag cake, Agnes. We all want some cake. She said, look, Harry, is it okay if I don't do that, if I keep the cake a little while? if we don't eat it right away. He said, sure, if you want to keep it, keep it. Take the cake home if you want. Can I? She said, looking at me. I live just down the street. I want to take the cake home because I've never had one. And I'll be right back. So she carried the cake out the door like it was the Holy Grail. And we all stood there motionless, a stunned silence in the place, not knowing what else to do. I broke the silence by saying, should we pray to the room full of prostitutes? Looking back on it now, it seems a bit strange for me to have said that. <laughs> in a leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes and that her life would be changed, that God would be good to her. 
When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said with a trace of irritation, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30am in the morning. Harry waited a moment and almost sneered as he answered, no you don't. There's no church like that because if there was, I'd join it. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church like that? We have an opportunity to be a church like that. We have an opportunity to be people like that. Not people that just come to church on a Sunday morning, but live the grace that we receive when we're there. You see, my dream isn't about a big church. My dream for faith life is this, that we would be a bunch of people who receive God's love even though we know we don't deserve it. And then we would extend that love to others because we refuse to let our own raggedness get in the way of giving that love away. That's what my and Cheryl's dream is for faith life. You see, love is God's signature. And grace makes that strict signature bold and strong. When we lose touch with grace, when we, when we forget that we don't deserve that grace, then it kills real love. Let me say that again because you haven't got that. When we lose touch with grace, when we forget that we don't deserve what God has given us, we lose touch with real love. It's a love killer when that process goes on in our mind, when, when we think we deserved it, when we act like we deserved it, when we tick more off our list than anybody else and we have that superior Christianity. It's a love killer. Now, what gets you past that love killer? Well, look what, what gets Gomer past it. Look what God does. Look what Hosea does on behalf of God. He goes and he buys her back. She's sold herself. She's owned by her lifestyle. She, she's, however much she might want to break free of it, she's owned by it. It's, it's got her life. In the same way as we, if we pursue things that are unworthy and pursue things that are, are wrong, we get owned by them. They get a grip on our lives and we can't get away from them. She's owned by it. And he goes and buys her back. And in the same way, Jesus came and bought us back. He came and gave up everything that he had in heaven. He came down to earth we abused him for three years and then we nailed him to a cross and killed him. And in doing so, he paid the price to buy us out of that relationship that owned us. So he, he became the one who had our hearts. Now this is what I find really exciting, that 
That if we understand this new life that, that Jesus has brought us into, it's, it's exciting. Like, this new life that Jesus has brought, brought us into, it isn't, look guys, it's not sitting on a chair on a Sunday morning going, oh, wonder what's for lunch afterwards. Or, I've done church, I don't, that's it for the week. It's not that. You see, what Jesus buys us into, what, what he sets us free to, it's, it's exciting, it's an adventure, it's the, it's the most risky, uh, adventurous um, journey that you can imagine. It's exciting. You have, you have the, the potential, you have the, the extraordinary privilege, the excitement of going and seeing bodies healed, souls saved, life changed, people put back together again, marriages restored, children brought, well, you've got the privilege and the honour of that. And that's exciting. And, and it, it just baffles me how we can reduce church to something that is all about numbers or size or just going there on a Sunday morning, ticking your list and going on with the rest of your life. How can we not get excited that we, we're not owned like that anymore? We're not owned by our careers. We're not owned by our jobs. We're not owned by our past. We're not owned by the hurt. We're not owned by what people have done to us. We are free to go, do all that. And you know, it hangs on something. It hangs on something. Jesus says this. He's, he, somebody comes up to him and he goes like, what's the best thing? What's the most important thing about your church then, Jesus? Why should we bother with your church? We've got the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the rabbis and they've got all their churches. Why should we bother with your church? And Jesus says this. He, say, he, doesn't, he doesn't go, because I'm better than everybody else or because I'm God. Because that's a good sales line, isn't it? Because I'm God, you should belong to my church. That's the one I would have used. Because it sort of stumps all the objections, doesn't it? Because I'm God, you should be in my church. He doesn't use that. He says this because he's trying to show us what, the, what it means to be God, what it means to be like him. And he says, this is how, this is how it all works. Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and all your strength. Just do it. Go for it. And then he says, and the second... And they go, a second, I only asked for one. The second, the second is like it. That means equivalent, just the same, which is to love others like you've been loved. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they're going like, how's that work then? Why I've got, I asked one, I've got two. And he says, no, you're not getting the point. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, you will have to love others because you will be so full of love, you've got to get it out. It's a product. You can't separate God, loving God and loving others because he loves others. So if you love him, you're going to love what he loves. And I'm going, guys, like, do, I, do I belong to a church that thinks like that? Do I belong to a body that thinks I want to love others like Christ loves me? Or do I just want to tick things off my list and have superior Christianity? What am I going for? And Jesus says... Like, you've got all your rabbis, your, your teachers, you've got all your glamorous churches, they've got this massive temple, synagogues, I've got nothing, I wander around with these grubby sandals on. What, what's it mean? And he says, all those other things hang on love. Now, I want you to imagine that all the good things you can do, I turn, you can, I'll give you permission to turn around and ignore me for one second, no more, one second, have a look at those blinds that are hanging down. 
Okay? Now, I want to imagine each of those lines. One is good, doing good things. One is mercy. One is feeding the poor. One is healing the sick. One is delivering those who are oppressed. One is setting people free. One is changing lives. One is changing souls. I want you to imagine what will happen to those lines if I take down the pole that they're hanging on. What happens? What's the back of this room going to look like? It's going to look like a pile of crumpled bits of material, isn't it? That's what Christianity looks like, not hung on love. It's got all the components there ready and waiting, but they're a mess. However much we try and do it, it doesn't translate, it becomes religion. Religion is a pile of crumpled curtains sat on a floor because there's no love to hang it on, no grace to hang it on. Everything we do flows from love. That's what Christ is trying to tell us. Now, let me finish this. How can I explain this to you? You see, if I thought that we at Faith Life, and I don't think this, but if I did, that we are going to settle for, I come to church on a Sunday Christianity, and actually I'm, I'm a superior Christian because I do a life group as well. <laughs> and I've done four ticks on my list this week because I was on worship team. And I helped set the tables up. So I'm, I'm doing well. If I thought we were going to reduce our Christianity to that, and I thought that we were building a church where we'll settle for that, I quit. Because God didn't call us to be that church. He called us to change something. He told, told us to be different. He told us to impact Cambridge. He told us to change lives. He told us to stand for the power of God and the miracles of God and take light out there. Not to build something that was static, but to build something with the power of God. And, he's, and he put it like this to me the other day. He said, I want you to build a church. I want faith life to be 24-7 believers. Not 24 minutes on a Sunday morning believers. 24-7 believers. Every minute of every day sold out for me. Every minute of every day burning with my love for other people. Knowing how much they are loved. Receiving my love. And you know, what we have in the UK and, and lots of other places, is abnormal Christianity. We, we settle for this. We, we think that this, you know, Sundays and doing church and all the rest of it is normal Christianity. I've got a question for you. If you think this is normal Christianity, this is my question. Why would God bother sending the Holy Spirit if we aren't supposed to use the power of the Holy Spirit? How is it that we can build churches and people and believers across this nation and there is no power? Why, what is, why didn't Jesus just say, go on, I've got some great strategies, brilliant techniques, and, and I've got this brilliant worship band for you guys. Off you go, build a church. Why didn't he just do that? Why? That's... What we call church is abnormal Christianity. And we need to break out of it into normal Christianity 
which is 24-7, sold out for God, walking in the power of the Spirit and seeing life change, people set free, and this city impacted for Christ. And we cannot do that without the power of God. All we will do without the power of God is in 10 years' time, we'll have two churches with everybody in them because they have the most money and the best equipment and the best worship team, and we all go there. And all we'll have done is we'll have transferred people out of every other single church in the city. Is that what you want? Or do we want to save the 150,000, which in 10 years' time will be 180,000 people? Do we want to make an impact out there? Do we want to see sick people healed? Do we want to see people delivered from the stuff that's wrecked their lives? Do we want to see marriages changed? Do we want to see children brought up godly? Because your schools won't do that for you. Then we have to walk in love and grace. You see, love isn't enough. I'd like to think it was. But I've been discovering, and God's been showing me, that love, acts of love, loving things that that we do, because we do do loving things. We feed people who don't have food. We, we bless the poor. We help people. We, we get involved in people's lives. We pray for people. We counsel people. You see, you can do all those things. You can have all the right words in all the right places in all the right moments, and it still doesn't work because it's coming from the wrong heart. And it's the heart that imparts. You see, love, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. Yeah? So faith is important. That's why we call faith life. It works through love. It doesn't work without love. Well, it does, but it doesn't count in God's scheme. But that love only works when it's the right kind of love. You see, there's a word for love that is used. It's called agape. And most of the time, the type of love that we show in the body of Christ isn't agape. It's, it's a whole, well, if you deserve it, or if you're in the right place at the right time, or if you're around, or if, if you can come up to my level, then you'll be okay. But most of us can't come up to their level. I'm still trying to come up to some people's levels and I can't do it. Because I need grace. You see, I don't know how to explain it, but love needs to be wrapped and come from grace, not religion. And and the only way I can explain it is that when I was at university, I went to these, like, dance classes. Because I thought, like, Wrongly, I thought that if I could learn ballroom dancing, then that would be really good for my career as an accountant because I'd have to go to all these formal dinners and balls and all that sort of stuff. By the time I got there, they didn't exist, those sort of things anymore. But I thought, I'll learn ballroom dancing. So I went along to the ballroom dancing classes, and, and, and should this person ever hear anything I say or listen to this recording, I had a, a dance partner called Jane Chumley. who was a lovely girl, um, but I just say up front that, that 
my approach to ballroom dancing came between us and wrecked our, our friendship. Um, but basically, I tried. I really did. I went along, and we had this dance teacher, and he, he used to train part of the UK dance ballroom dance team. And he had, I'd, 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 you know, I, I didn't think about these things then, but he had, a, he had a little dog with pink ribbons in his hair, and, and the dog was a boy. And I should have started worrying then. And this dog used to run around while we were learning to dance. And we, we were in the sports hall, and we, we'd, like, be doing the cha-cha-cha, you know. <laughs> like that. So... So I'd listen, I'd listen really carefully. I'm going like, what's the rule? It's, it's two and it's one and, and, and it's two and it's one. And, and I, I really tried hard. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going and I'm like, Jane's going, ow, ooh, ow. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, I'm trying. So I tried for weeks and weeks. 12 weeks, 12 weeks I went to ballroom dancing class. And we're doing this bronze ballroom dance medal. And, and I'm going, Jane, Jane, I'm just not going to be able to do it. So she said, practice, practice hard, practice hard, you can do it. So I'm there. Now, I have to say this was also a bit embarrassing, but I'm in, I'm in the kitchen shared with 10 other blokes, and I'm in the kitchen cooking my meals, practicing my dance steps <laughs> to the music because I really wanted to be able to do it. And, and, and I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm, think, I'm dreaming dancing, I'm, I'm thinking dancing, I'm trying, I know every rule, every step, on that beat, on that beat, yeah, go. And I passed <laughs> with the lowest mark that he was possible to achieve <laughs> and still pass. And it said, Mark has all the right moves in all the wrong places. <laughs> he lacks grace. That's true. That's true, isn't it? I gave up and, and at that point Jane fell out with me. <laughs> as well as getting some treatment on her toes. <laughs> but you can have all that. You see, you can have all the right things, but it doesn't add up if it's not in a framework of grace. Yeah. And you see, this world is sick and tired of Christians who say they have all the right values and they're committed to all the right things, and yet it's not from a heart of grace. This world is sick and tired of that type of Christianity where we think we have all the right values and all the right concerns and all the right commitments. You know, we have to stop being a body that is known for what it is against. Christianity in this land is known for what it is against. We're extremists because we're against everything. What we need to be is extreme because we're for Jesus and for loving people. Extreme love. What we need to do is start a revolution based on loving people. And it has to start with each other. Because we have to be the model. And then it's got to go further. Let me finish with this story. One of my favourite books... That would be the tattoo exploding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so exciting when I get these Facebook posts and I get these emails and I get these texts. And I've had texts this week say, saying that, you know, I brought somebody to church and or I was talking to somebody and I led them to Christ. And then we get testimonies about going and praying for, for, for guys not even 
you know, as far away from Christianity you can get, and they've got metal plates in the back, and, you know, we keep praying for them, and then they're bending over, and they're fully mobile and fully healed. And you go, man, that's the type of belief I want. That's the type of Christianity that I want to live with. That's what's going to change this city. Do you, have you all seen that testimony on Facebook? Yeah? Isn't it incredible? Isn't it incredible what our God can do? Isn't it incredible that, that I can preach rubbish sermons or, or waffle away at the front here about cha-cha-chas and people get saved? It's not me. It's God. It's not the person who prays. It's God. And we need a whole lot more God and a whole lot less us. And the only way we do that is to keep on remembering what we were saved from. That we were saved in a way that we never deserve it and we still don't deserve it, but we can celebrate. You know, I put up on Facebook a few weeks ago a quote from a guy, I think he's called Louis Smeads. I've not read any of these things, but I like this quote. And he said, it is a very sad thing that God had to come to earth and Jesus had to die for me but it is a very good thing that he loved me enough to think I was worth it. And we have to remember that. That's, that's who we are. That's, that's what gives humility. And it is humility that God gives grace to. My favorite, one of my favorite books, not my favorite, who knows what my favorite book is? Come on, Christmas quiz. No. Tale of Two Cities, that's my favourite book. So this year's Christmas quiz, you might want to remember that one. Anyway, one of the other books that's a real favourite of mine, and, and, I, and I like, I've seen the stage show and I've seen the movie, and I've seen the movie lots of times because somebody likes Hugh Jackman, and <laughs> is Les Miserables. The Miserables, yeah. <laughs> Les Miserables. Now, there's two characters in Les Miserables, that are central characters. One's called Jean Valjean, and the other is called Inspector Javert. And when I first read this, it mirrored an incident in my life, which I shared a couple of weeks ago. About, do you remember I shared with you about my uh, foolproof method of stealing comics when I was a kid? <laughs> Magazines. I, and th there was this um, man who owned our newsagent post office, everything, including selling penny bubblies and lucky bags, and he was, he, he was called George Natras, and he caught me. And he told me, I'm not going to tell your parents, but don't do it again. And at that moment, I encountered grace. I didn't deserve that, because I'd been nicking off him for months. I didn't deserve it. But it's a bit like that. So Valjean, this is potted history. I, I, have to, I, I thought I'd get in on one of those audio books. You know, so I could listen to it. It's 69 hours long, Les Miserables, on the audiobooks. That's twice as long as Nicholas Nickleby that I listened to over Christmas. And 34 hours is a lot of listening. So 68 hours is, so you're going to get 68 hours in two minutes. Is that okay? Okay. So Valjean, he basically gets locked up in prison for, I think it's 17 or 18 years, for stealing a loaf of bread. And it's, it's a terrible, you know, this is hard labor prison. And he gets let out, and basically what happens, he's, he ends up staying with a bishop. But he hasn't broken out of his old way of life. And he, he basically, he leaves in the middle of the night, and temptation's too much for him, so he takes a lot of the silver out of the church. And he, and he, and he goes, and he's caught. He's caught by a policeman, 
And, the, and he says, the policeman says, what are you doing with all that stuff in your bag? And he says, well, it's a gift. The bishop gave me it. So the policeman says, right, we're going to take you back to the bishop. So, he, like, he knows. He knows, like, this is the end. He's gone, he's gone back to prison, hard labour for life. And, he, and he's gone, like, okay, I, that's it. And, and they take him back to the bishop and, and they say to the bishop, this man says you gave him this as a gift. And the bishop looks at him and he said, yeah, I did, my son. I gave you that. But you left the best part. You forgot the silver candlesticks. Now let me put those in your bag because you didn't take the whole of the gift. And he goes from facing the rest of his life in prison hard labour to being set free with an abundance. And that's us. And he's blindsided because there's love wrapped in grace. And it changes his life. And this bishop says to him, this, this is the quote, you must never forget this moment, my son. Your soul and life have been brought back. From now on, you are not your own. You belong to God. And his life from then on becomes an act of love. And he, he takes on the, the upbringing of a prostitute who, who dies and he brings up her daughter. And at various points, he risks his own life to save the man who loves this, this girl that he's brought up. And he lives his life as an act of love because he knows what he's been saved from. Now, Inspector Javert represents to us religion. Inspector Javert is convinced of his own righteousness. He's convinced he's better than other men. He sees himself as a champion of morality. He sees himself as bringing righteousness and goodness to the world. And he pursues Valjean. He pursues him all the way through the book. All 68 hours he's pursuing Valjean. And basically, he has some really good aims. Because he wants, he, he wants to see society better. He, he, wants to, he wants to see crime eradicated. He wants wrongdoing stopped. He wants corruption out of their country. And because he wants to see those good things, he makes huge personal sacrifices for it. He, he, he basically gives up his life to see change. And his way of doing that is to pursue the wrongdoer. He sees himself as an agent for good. You see, you can do all the right things, but without grace, they don't add up. Yeah. And he wants to see Valjean back in prison for life because he thinks he deserves it. But God doesn't think he does.
And what happens in the end is that Val's, uh, Inspector Javert gets himself in a really difficult situation and Valjean exposes himself and saves Inspector Javert's life. Javert can't cope with somebody who would basically put themselves in the position of going back to prison for life in order to help him. And he kills himself because he can't come to terms with grace. And we have a choice as a church, and we have a choice as individuals. Will we be those who are in relationship with God and show grace and love, like the bishop and like Valjean walked in, and like Hosea, and see people able to break out of that cycle of sin and shame and hurt and get rid of that tattoo on their mind? Or will we be like Javert and tick a few things off our list, go to church, think we're doing okay, and call everybody up to our level that they can't get to? Because every time they come near us, they encounter religion and not religion.